all set to read the letter of Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. Although you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand. And the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them, they have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feasts, for eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires, they boast about themselves, and flatter others for their own advantage. But, dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are people who divide you, who allow mere natural instincts who followed mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith 
and praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Saviour, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. And all the people said, Amen. Thanks, Gillian. Uh, well, my name's Scott, and I'd love to add my welcome to that of Andrews. It's uh, really great uh, to be together with you all today. Um, now, look, I don't know if anyone's ever had this passage preached at uh, a baptism before. You might be the first one in the world, Lily, I don't know. Uh, but uh, that was uh, what was in our schedule, that's what we're up to today. And actually, Lily, you know what? I think it's actually quite helpful today, because it's kind of like a, a realistic look at a very important part of what it means to follow Christ that a lot of people probably don't really think or talk about a lot. So really helpful this morning. Uh, you'll need to have uh, the letter of Jude open in some way, shape or form. So grab out your phones uh, or stick your hand up while I'm praying in a second and uh, someone will bring you a Bible. Um, it's right near the end of the Bible. It's the second last book of the Bible, Jude, just before Revelation. Um, and make sure you keep that handy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. Uh, we thank you that we know that even though this is a letter that was written to people in the first century, it's a letter that you wrote for us today as well. And you caused it to be written down and saved and included in the scriptures for us today to hear. And so we pray, Lord, that you'd open our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds, that we would understand what you're saying. We will see how good it is and how important it is and that it would transform our hearts and our minds and our actions. Amen. All right, well, uh, we've just got a, a picture. It's about to flash up on the screen. I want you to tell me, uh, who do these people guard? So our first one, thanks, Luke. All right, who can tell me who this person guards? Luther. They guard castles. Castles, yes. And to be precise, this is part of the king's guard who guards uh, the king of Buckingham Palace and the crown jewels and all the fancy things inside. Uh, and our next one, who does this next person guard? Me, no, no. <laughs> uh, this is a bodyguard. This guards people, this person. From, it protects people if they're famous or important or, or neither of the above but have lots of money. And our next... That could guard lots of things. Actually, this one, I have a story about this one. You know, my wife, Keely, when she was little, uh, she was on her dad's boat one day and uh, there's a sort of a hatch, it's kind of like a door, and it was locked with a special padlock and, you know, it's a boat and everything rusts, so it was an expensive padlock. And, and he unlocked the padlock and he unlocked the hatch and he passed the padlock to Keely and he said, look after this, guard it. And he turned around and he put the hatch down and Keely, being a young girl, just sort of went, oh, I wonder what this does, and dropped it off the side of the boat uh, down into the water below. 
Now, what is the most precious thing, I wonder, maybe even more precious than a padlock, that you have had to guard at some point? Maybe a secret? Have some of your kids ever had to guard a secret? Yeah? Maybe a friend's toy or maybe you've had to look after someone else's money for them. Maybe you've been a ring bearer in a wedding. I just feel like that's the most stress-inducing job of the whole wedding, to be honest. I'd rather preach than hold and lose the rings. Uh, Maybe someone's gone overseas and left you with a family heirloom of theirs to, to look after for them. Or maybe, maybe you've had to babysit someone's child. Or husband, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> see, there, it's pretty special, isn't it, when someone entrusts you with something that they treasure to look after. It feels pretty good, doesn't it, to know that they trust you enough to say, here's something that I treasure that's really precious to me, and I'm entrusting you to look after it, to keep it safe, to guard it. Pretty special. It is a big honour, isn't it, when someone entrusts you with a treasure, but it's also a big responsibility. See, we need to honour the trust that they have given to you and guard that treasure carefully for them. Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, God has entrusted you with something that he treasures, that he wants you to guard. Even kids like Lily and Luther and Aaron and Annika, all of us who are followers of Jesus, God has entrusted us with an incredible treasure for us to guard. And that's actually why this letter was written. God has entrusted us with the most precious thing of all. Have a look with me at verse 3. Now, originally, Jude, who's one of Jesus' brothers, who was an early leader in the church... Originally, Jude tells us he was planning to write a completely different letter. But he knew that God had entrusted his people with this treasure to guard. And when he could see that it was in danger, he knew straight away he had to sound the alarm. Verse 3. Dear friends, Jude writes, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share... I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend. That's a word that means battle or fight or struggle for. I felt compelled to urge to you, uh, sorry, I felt compelled to write and to urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. So kids... What is this most precious treasure of all that God has entrusted to his people? What does it say? Yep. The faith. The faith. That's another, that's another way of saying actually the truth that God has passed down. The Christian message, the good news, the gospel, the faith that was given to you, that you learned, that you have believed, that saved you. It's the news that Jesus became human, that he was fully God, became fully man, came to earth as our king to rescue us from the judgment that we rightly deserve by sacrificing himself and taking our punishment, but then rising to life again to bring us life and forgiveness. That is the faith. 
And that message is what God has entrusted to us, to guard, to contend for, to fight for, to protect and preserve and keep pure. Now, this really is the most precious thing in all the world. It is the faith, not a faith, not one of many faiths. It's actually, at the end of the day, only, the only faith that is worth having. It is the only true good news, the only faith that can save anyone from hell. It is the only faith that can give people eternal life in God's new creation. It's the only faith that can bring us peace with God so we won't be destroyed. And actually it's the faith that Jesus gave his own life to to purchase and establish. There's nothing on the earth anywhere near as precious as the faith that God has entrusted to us to guard and cling to and keep pure and protect Isn't that an incredible honour that God's given us? Massive honour that he would entrust. I'm not worth trusting with that. I don't know about you. There's a massive honour. But it's also a massive responsibility, isn't it? And one we need to take really, really seriously. But what is it that we have to guard this treasure from? What, What do we need to guard the faith from? Have a look at verse 4. Jude tells us why we need to guard it. Certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago, they've slipped secretly in among you. Jude says they are ungodly people who pervert, who distort, who manipulate, who change, who ruin and twist the grace of our God into a license for immorality. You know what that means? It means they take the good news of Jesus. Jesus died for your sins and you're forgiven. And they twist it to say that it's okay that we sin. They twist it to say you're forgiven, so it's okay to not obey God. That's perverse. It is wrong. They pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and they deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord, our only ruler and king and master. Now, do you know what happens when someone uh, messes, fiddles with, tampers with a parachute? What do you reckon happens to a parachute if someone, you know, just comes along and kind of unpacks it from the bag and goes, oh, what's this? And and just kind of stuffs it back in or maybe, maybe... unclips a buckle or unties a bit of rope. What, what, what do you reckon is going to happen if you jump out the plane with that parachute, Luther? I don't think it's going to save your life. It's, it's you know, it's, it's going to be, it's not going to save anyone, is it? When you, it's, it'll be broken. That's right. When you mess with the parachute, it's not going to work anymore. And, you know, actually, that's exactly what happens When people come and they take the good news of God, the faith, the message of Jesus, the gospel, and they change it and they tamper with it and they take bits out of it 
and they muck it around and twist it up, it stops working. See, when you take the message of Jesus, the, the faith passed down, and you tamper with it, it won't save anybody. And so Jude says, this is why we must contend, we must fight to guard the faith. We must fight to make sure that people don't come and change the teachings and tangle them up and take some bits out and throw some bits away and add some bits in because if they do that, that message will not save anyone. And we cannot have that. We cannot stand back and do nothing when people try and change and distort the faith. But, Jude tells us here, actually, they, they snuck in secretly. So how are we even supposed to know who we're supposed to contend with? Well, as Jude writes about them a little more, he gives us some clues and things to look for to know how to spot. So who are these intruders we must fight against? Now, I remember many years ago, uh, one of our kids... Uh, it's funny, actually. You know how when you like your kids are little, the only criminal they know of is robbers. You know, like every bad guy's a robber, and everyone in jail was a robber. You know. Anyway, anyway, I remember one of my kids one day just sort of saying that, like, how do robbers rob shops? Because as soon as they walk in, everyone will know they're robbers. I said, oh, well, how will they know they're robbers? Well, because they wear you know those stripy shirts and those funny little black things around their eyes and a black beanie. You know, they've got the robber uniform. It doesn't quite work like that, does it? It doesn't work like that. And so it doesn't work like that either in the church. Those who secretly slip in and try to tamper with things, change things, meddle with the gospel. But Jude gave us the signs. Have a look at verse 4. These intruders who slipped in were ungodly people. See, if you really looked at their character, if you looked outside that Sunday facade they put on as they drove from home to church, if you scratch beneath the surface, maybe if you ask their wife or their husband or their kids, you talk to their neighbour, their boss, their colleagues, so you realise they don't have a godly character. They're making decisions at points, various points, lots of points, to actually do things that are just quite clearly, plainly, in the Bible, wrong. And look, we all sin, but they're people who don't want to change it and are happy to just keep going on being ungodly, not honouring God. Next, they're ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into a licence for immorality. As I said before, they distort the Christian faith to try and use the Christian faith, to try and even use the verses in the Bible and the Bible to justify their sin. To say, here, look, it's okay, we're forgiven. Or here, look, this doesn't matter. And then we see that they deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Now, there's not a heap. There are. There, I mean, there are plenty who do just come out and say, look, Jesus is not really God. I mean, the Mormons, the J-dubs. There's a whole heap of people who will say, no, Jesus is not God. 
But a lot of people will deny that Jesus is our only sovereign and Lord, our only God and King, without ever saying it. If you ask them, oh, is Jesus King? Of course. Is he God? Yeah, definitely. But often they'll deny it by the way they live. They'll deny it by lifting other things up in importance to the level that only Jesus should have. Whether that be lifting up tradition of church, whether that be lifting up traditions that we do, whether that be lifting up other teachings from people, whether that be lifting up anything at all, trying to lift up science or whatever it is, they slip in and make other things or other people equal in importance and authority to Jesus. Now, I think that last one is probably more prevalent than we realise. Making things as important or more important in authority to Jesus. That means practically they can live lives where they will say Jesus is king, but actually the thing that rules their life the most and sets the direction of their life the most is not Jesus, but something else. Something else has become the supreme, the sovereign, the Lord of their life. Well, after explaining, ungodly, they pervert the grace of God into a license for sin and that they deny Jesus. Jude then gives us a a few examples from the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, of people back in the Old Testament who were condemned for sinning in the same way as these imposters. If you look there at verse 5, you'll see that the Israelites who God had rescued out of Egypt seen incredible miracles, but still didn't believe that God would do what he promised and be faithful to them. In verse 6, Jude mentions the angels who abandoned God, who left their proper place in heaven. And then in verse 7, He mentions the sinful nations of Sodom and Gomorrah who engaged in sexual immorality and all of these rebelled against God, were ungodly. They perverted his grace. They denied God as their only Lord and King and they were all judged for it. In verse 8, have a look. In the very same way, as those people and angels from the Old Testament. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. Well, we'll unpack that. In other words, what he's saying is, these imposters in the church, just like those people who'd rebelled against God in the past, They are polluting themselves by doing sinful things. They are also rejecting the authority of Jesus. They're rejecting the authority of the apostles, the authority of the Bible, the authority of the church leadership. And they, that last one about abuse and celestial beings, Jude says, they're treating heavenly beings, spiritual beings, beings that we can't see with our eyes, as if they were nothing. Why? 
Why are they doing all these things? Well, because, says Jude, of their dreams. Now, the other day, uh, Keely told us about uh, she'd had a dream where she'd brought our dog Cindy to church, to kids' church, and she was teaching kids' church, and Cindy somehow turned into a snake and started attacking all the kids. Uh, And then Josiah told me that he had a dream uh, that I'd gotten a job at a zoo full of really unusual animals. And I was riding around on this horse and that as my horse galloped along, each of its hoof prints left fire on the ground and smoke. And he rode past me on a horse and his horse caught fire, you know. Uh, Sometimes I have dreams and uh, the only one I really seem to remember actually is I have dreams of sometimes I come to church and I come in, I sit down and we're singing and then someone gets up and goes, okay, Scott's going to be preaching today. And I go, <gasps> I thought someone else was preaching. <laughs> and I realise I've got like three minutes to listen really hard to this Bible reading and try and figure out what I'm going to say. And then I have another one actually sometimes where I am preaching and then all of a sudden I realise I'm, I'm naked and you guys are all just there and no one said anything. And then the really bad dream is actually sometimes I have the two dreams come together where I am both sitting there and realise I need to preach and I'm also naked and I can't fix either of them. And so, yeah. Anyway, dreams. Dreams are funny things, aren't they? I mean, our our brains. Our our brains are just amazingly inventive, aren't they? Think of some of the things that we dream while we're asleep. Some of them are just really lovely. Some of them are awful. Some of them are just totally crazy. Dreams can be pretty weird. But here in verse 8, Jude says that there are intruders in the church who have abandoned the faith, who have distorted the faith, who have denied Jesus who have decided it's okay to do things that God expressly told us not to. Why? Because they had dreams. Now, I think here he includes not just the dreams when you go to sleep on your pillow at night. I think he also includes visions, the kind of words where we hear a word that is not from, it's not an audible word, there was no one around, no speaker to speak it. Those kind of quickening words from God. Here, Jude says, these people who have snuck in, who are perverting the gospel, who we need to contend against, they're doing this because of their dreams. Based on these dreams, these visions, these words, they're elevating them to the highest level of authority and Jesus is under God's word that his spirit has given us is under and less important. And the thing that is shaping mostly is these dreams. Now maybe you've had dreams which are very significant to you. Dreams where you felt God is speaking to you. I remember having a it wasn't a sleeping dream, it was it was a wake, it was a vision one day I was praying with some young men as, you know, I was probably 18 or 19 at the time. And uh, I just had this vision of a whole, like just this mental image that was just so clear in my mind, it was bizarre, of just loads and loads of young men praying and being serious about Jesus. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. 
Now, I, I don't know if that was sort of God giving me a vision or if it was my mind imagining something which just happens to be a really good and wonderful thing that I would love to see happen. I don't know. But if we have dreams that in any way contradict or challenge or cross out or undermine the word of God that he has given us and we put them above God's word, we're actually putting them above Jesus who gave us that word. And we are perverting the gospel and the faith that he has given us. Jude tells us that dreams and visions and quickened words do not override God's word. They do not make something that the Bible says is sinful okay. And they do not give us the right to reject anything in the scriptures or to reject the leadership that God has established and definitely not to replace Jesus or make anything or anyone else equal to his authority. And also, he says here, they don't give us the ability or the permission to speak into the spiritual world with arrogance and authority. See there that, that line. In verse 8, they heap abuse on celestial beings, on heavenly beings. He says in verse 9, actually, you know, even the archangel Michael, this guy's really special in heaven. Even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, he did not dare himself to condemn Satan for slander. But he just said, look, the Lord rebuke you. I do not stand in God's place, Michael knew. I do not have the authority or power to say, I condemn you. No, 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 that's God's job. The Lord rebuke you. I am only a humble servant, said the archangel Michael. That's interesting, isn't it? There, there are lots of people who claim to have this incredible authority in the spiritual world. The authority to just get up and say to Satan, get out of here. I command you, Satan. I rebuke you, Satan. I... Actually, God speaking by his spirit through Jude says, we do not have that authority. We say, actually, may the Lord deal with you, Satan. He will judge you. Now, Jude is not saying here that God never speaks to people in dreams or visions or words. And Jude's not saying here either that dreams and visions and words are never spiritually significant or that they're never good or they're never great or they're never helpful. Plenty of people in the Bible, mostly prophets, but plenty of people had very, very significant dreams and visions and words from God where God revealed something to them. But Jude is saying that these will never contradict or override the word that God has confirmed and handed down and preserved and entrusted to us to guard and keep. These dreams are not the things that we build our faith on. And when we do build our faith and our spirituality on them, 
it'll end up perverted. It'll end up destroying the faith. It'll eventually end up with us denying Jesus. Have a look at verse 17. Jude goes even further. He says that those who elevate these dreams and things to that place that overrides God's word, they actually end up shipwrecking their own faith. Even though they think they're super spiritual, Jude says they don't have God's spirit at all. Verse 17, Dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts. They do not have the spirit. These people who puff themselves up and boast about the authority they have over Satan and demons. Actually, Satan's just in the background rubbing his hands with glee because he's tricked them. He's led them astray. He's led them off the path of the faith and into darkness and condemnation. See, if they don't have God's spirit there's actually every chance that these visions and dreams and words came from Satan himself. They don't have the spirit. And rather than build up God's church, what do they do? They divide it. They cause division. The only thing they build is their own condemnation. Verse 13. They are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame. Wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Verse 14, Enoch, the seventh after Adam, prophesied about them. He said, see, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Jude says, this was written about these people, along with all those who scoff against God. Now, this perverted, false imitation of Christianity is actually just incredibly widespread. Uh, some of the most perverse and condemned individuals to have ever walked the planet are actually held up by kind of the Christian world as some of the greatest heroes of the faith. From the Charles Finneys and the Catherine Coolmans and the Kenneth Copelands and the Bill Johnsons and the millions in between. Some of these people who are some of the worst distorters and perverters of the faith are held up as some of its greatest heroes. This misplaced emphasis and this misplaced authority on these dreams and experiences pushed the faith aside and paved the way for a demonic faith that's driven by what, does Jude say? By their own natural, sinful, ungodly instincts. Devaluing the authority of Scripture, denying Jesus as Lord, destroying the gospel that brings salvation creating so-called Christians who celebrate and practice ungodliness.
has filtered down and infected people here. Now, I know there are some of us, myself included, who have been caught up in this imitation Christianity. Some of us have seen that arrogance, haven't we? That boastfulness, that pride. We've seen that rejection. Some of us have joined in. And now we can see just how incredibly deceitful and dangerous it is. Maybe some of us here still feel that lure, that pull. I mean, it, it does look kind of amazing, that kind of individualistic, you know, false Christianity. But it's not the spirituality that Jesus gave us. Jesus and the apostles didn't preach a gospel of dreams, but a gospel of facts, of a message of the faith that was passed down and entrusted to us. Not a faith that changes from person to person and dream to dream. An unchanging message recorded for all time and preserved for us in the Holy Scriptures. He's not an elusive God who can only be heard and experienced and found by a few elite or sporadically from time to time with a little fix here and a little there. He is the accessible God who we can come to and meet and know and find and hear every single time we open his word. And the good news is that actually we don't need to tell Satan to get lost. We just leave that to Jesus. He'll deal with it. You don't have to worry. What Jude tells us we must fight to preserve the true faith against the counterfeit faith. How do we do that? Last point. The way we must fight. Have a look at verse 20. This is a nice short one. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. That means when you see someone else who's wandering into sin, who's wandering into false teaching, who's wandering into this kind of thing, grab them and go, mate, come back to the truth. Look where this leads. To others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. Show mercy to those who sin, but... Whatever you do, don't get brought into the sin yourself. See, how do we guard and fight for the true faith? By building ourselves up in it. By keeping ourselves in his love, by building ourselves up in that faith. We preserve it in our hearts and our minds as we take in the true faith, as we grow in the scriptures that have been entrusted to us. And as we, as we pray in the Spirit, asking God to reveal the truth, asking God to preserve this true gospel, the true faith. And actually, as we keep ourselves, that's not the full story, is it? Because back in verse 1, Jude already told us that God has kept us. And here in the very last verse, uh, verse 24, we see he is the one who is able to keep us from stumbling. Yet we cooperate with him in that keeping by building ourselves up 
in the true faith. And then we cooperate by helping build others up, by showing the true mercy to sinners, which doesn't say, hey, it's okay, just keep doing it. God loves you no matter what. No. We show the mercy says, brother, sister, that will kill you. Come back to forgiveness and grace and mercy and put that sin away. 